You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's episode was brought to you by Blueheart, the easy-to-use, expert-designed app for couples who are experiencing difficulties with libido, one of the most common sexual challenges that couples come up against. Blueheart are challenging the taboo around the subject by making getting help and advice more accessible. Blueheart is removing some of the barriers to make sex therapy possible for everyone. They offer expert-led therapeutic techniques, activities, education and guided conversations, all from the app so that you can prioritise your relationship and sexual well-being in a way that works for you at your own pace. The Blueheart app is available to download now on Android and iPhone. I'm incredibly excited that my guest this morning is Dominic Davies, who is a bit of a legend in our therapy world, Um, a consultant, psychotherapist, clinical psychologist, author, and winner of the 2018 Sexual Freedom Award for Lifetime Achievement, which is something that not very many of us can say. And we are going to be talking about sexual diversity and everything that that covers, because it is such an enormous, enormous subject and something that Dominic is a world-renowned expert in. So Dominic, thank you so much for sharing your time with me this morning. Thank you for the invitation to do so. And I guess really what we're talking about is how there is such a huge range and spectrum of sexualities. And I guess I wanted to get straight into it as a subject by talking about how we now understand there's such a huge spectrum of sexualities and it's way beyond binary but why it's the case that we then kind of still lean into labels or cling on to labels so much and why, you know, why that might be the case. Okay. Well, I think think humans like to identify and name things, whether that's plants or people or objects or whatever. It's how we make sense of our world. This is a thing, an X, a Y. This, um, you know, and, and lots of these things are given validity by giving, being given Latin names to start with. And then we kind of reclaim and have an ordinary word for the thing as well. It's, it's a way in which I think the, the, that humans find out what they are and what's different to them and can be able to perhaps find a place in the world. Having said that, increasingly, I think some people say, well, I, I want to defy the labels or those labels don't mean anything for me and instead look for a new label. And so we've seen a plethora of new identity labels for gender, for example. Facebook several years ago produced a list of, what well, was it, over 50, I think, different ways of identifying one's gender. Um, so whilst we know gender isn't binary, there's this enormous spectrum just on gender, let alone sexualities. Um, so I think if you know, you, if you could find a name for yourself, then sometimes you can find out information about yourself and then you might be able to find other people like yourself. But if you don't know what it's called, it's don't, you probably think you're, the, you're unique or you're the, you're the only one in the village and that can be a, a place of great isolation and lead to you know, tre- tremendous shame. So I think, I think they have their place. Mm. So do you think it's a sense of kind of exploring like belonging and with that I suppose identity yeah I think so it's a it's a way in which for some people they can claim a pride in who they are as being other than who they were expected to be 
at its best, I guess, at its best. Yeah, and I suppose I was going to say, do you think at its worst, it's then people feeling shame for who they are? Well, that, that, that certainly can happen, that people who don't fit within the dominant norms, the accepted norms, can feel um, uh, really looked down upon by those who hold the power to name things and to, to make the laws to protect people and, and to give to give legal rights to to people. So if you if you have a sexuality that is um, frowned upon by society or condemned by society, then you're seen not as a as a person in the world. You're not supposed to have any kind of legal rights, um, and and that can that can lead to a lot of hate. And and we've seen you know what's happened to paedophiles um, that whether they are actually having sex with children or not. If you know that there's a paedophile living in your street, then there's a whole lot of um, kerfuffle and violence directed towards them because these are probably one of the most shamed and reviled group. They're not necessarily the same thing. Well, I don't think they are the same thing as child abusers. I mean, I've jumped into a fairly extreme example for you. Mm. But um, there are are virtuous paedophiles who are not acting on those desires and are just wanting to lead a quiet life and live with this this challenging situation of remaining asexual for the rest of their lives. Mm. And I mean, as you said, it's an extreme example, but it's one that kind of demonstrates, I suppose, a huge point here. And I suppose, you know, you were saying their kind of culture and society, you know, although we've come such a long way in in terms of acceptance, the society we live in is still very largely heteronormative. It, it is very much geared towards that and mononormative. So we're expected not only to conform to particular values in society that, that um, we, we should be coupled, we should live with our partner, we should have children. Um, the, all of these things give meaning and, and value. And if we don't want to do any of those things, then uh, we're seen as mad, bad or dangerous to those who are doing those things because we represent an alternative, what's called an alternative lifestyle, which is often a tool, a word to kind of bash us. Um, But then we're also expected to be monogamous um, and just to have one partner who meets all of our needs for the rest of our lives. And and you and I both know from our our client work (laughs) that that's not the case. That, that, that it's very, very rare that you can find one person to meet all of your needs forever. Mm. And actually, you know, it's something that we as relationship therapists and you hear relationship experts talking about quite a lot, isn't it? Is this idea that even in monogamous relationships, we shouldn't rely on one person mm. to meet every single need. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, they're guaranteed to fail us Absolutely. if that's the case, because Absolutely. we're all going to disappoint each other if we're expected to be everything always for for one person absolutely yeah and I wanted to just um jump back to something that you were talking about earlier you were talking about sex and gender and this is something that I really wanted us to I suppose clarify in this episode sometimes it feels like people use those terms synonymously but we obviously know that they aren't synonymous Mm -hmm. and how would you separately define them as concepts and where do you think the most common confusion comes about when, when we hear these being discussed? Well, sex, sex is often talked about in terms, is a word that means, can mean many things. It can be a biological sex, um, and so we can distinguish it from gender 
in terms of gender being a social construction, in terms of our masculinity or our femininity, how we perform our gender in the world. Um, but, it, it, uh, but we might be assigned a biological sex at birth, although the biological sex that we're assigned at birth is forced into a binary. We, um, and yet many people, you know, one in a hundred births are born intersex with indeterminate genders or indeterminate sexes. Um, so sex gets used in that way, and then sex gets used to, in terms of sexual orientation, um, and it gets to, used in terms of sexual activity. Have you had sex? Did you, did you, did you do it? Did you, did you have sex with each other? And then what that means, of course, means very different things to people. And some people it means, did you penetrate the, your partner? And other people it will mean, did you, did you enjoy an orgasm together? Mm. So it's so uh, multifaceted. Yeah. So it's a very multifaceted word. Um, and can be, you know, that's why it's very, it's very helpful, I think, to, to, to sit down with clients when they come in and, and try to unpick what do they mean by, by sex when they're, when, they're, when they're talking about things. Mm, and I often do that with clients kind of in the therapy room, you know, when you say the word sex, what do you mean or what kind of comes up for you or how do you define that or what does that look like in your world or in your relationship? Because as we know and something I talk about kind of a lot as a therapist is this idea of we're trying to break away from this very linear limiting kind of goal orientated model of sex which is that sex equals penis in vagina penetration and by definition what that does is it discounts everything else now in lots of relationships there isn't both a penis and a vagina so for example what does that mean that those people aren't having sex sex? yeah exactly (laughs) um and that's hugely hugely problematic but you know, also that people that have injuries or, you know, illnesses or disabilities or preferences, mm-hmm. that all of those things, again, don't count. And that, for me, is something I kind of feel like I am trying to correct as an idea sure, a lot. Sure. It's, it, 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 this is why the diversity, we, this is why we talk in terms of diversities, because there are many different genders sex, sexualities, uh, body types, relationship, diversities, and there's no one correct way of doing things. But if you're outside of the, the norm, the heteronormative, mononormative, cisgendered, and I'm using a lot of words here that are, are, are more common now, but not necessarily in common parlance, and so we might need to go back and just undo, uh, unpack some of those, then, um, then if you're outside of that, then you don't belong or you're something, there's something wrong with you and you need to go and get yourself a, a therapist to get yourself sorted out. Mm. Whereas our job is, when they come in, is to kind of normalise almost everything that's coming to us and say, yes, well, you're not alone in this. and There are other people like you and this is, there are the support out there and you know, you're not wrong for feeling this way. And, mm. um, you know, you have created, I mean, the very, very amazing... Pink Therapy, who, um, you know, the organisation that works with gender, sex, relationship, diverse people. And I guess from your, you know, that kind of being born and created and maintained and it's, you know, an organisation I refer to a lot is, was out of a need for the understanding and a safe place for those people to go or for people to understand that they can approach therapists and feel that they will be 
understood or kind of met where they're at and that that's hugely important as well because there is a lot of confusion or kind of misunderstanding or you know dare I say ignorance kind of across the board which can be hugely damaging for people if they are trying to explore this area of their identity because I suppose what we're also talking about is the fact that people aren't you know might be questioning where they're at and that not everyone is always kind of certain or sure or feeling that where they are is right for them. That's absolutely right. I mean, many people are trying to find their ways, their place to, to, to find a label that works for them or to try out identities, maybe to adopt multiple uh, identifications because one label barely does enough for any of us nowadays. And so it's, it's about um, helping people make sense of who they are and what feels right for them. And sometimes that involves them conducting some experiments. It might be going and, and watching some, some videos. It might be reading some, some material. It might be going to social spaces where people like they think they might be are and talking to people and, and getting a sense of, does this feel like I found a home here or these are my, these are my people? Mm. Um, can they identify? Can they feel safe? Can they relate in... In, in those contexts, and of course, the more f- the the more narrow your identification is, the harder it might be to meet people. Like uh, asexuality, for example, we don't really have pubs and clubs where asexuals can go and meet, and yet one in ten percent of the population are likely to be asexual. So they they may be just meeting online via websites and and chat groups in in that context. But it's a, it can feel very lonely when you're the, you, you feel like you're the asexual in, in a city like Nottingham or Leicester. And where, mm-hmm. are, where are the others? And there are many others. But um, they may not, A, they may not want to meet socially, for example. They may be in a marriage or in a relationship, but their asexuality isn't a big part of their identity. Or they may want to meet, but they just don't know how would you tell where, where would be a safe space. Mm, and that visibility is a problem for lots of communities. Very much so. So, and pride is generally seen as, as gay pride still, as LGBT pride, perhaps. But um, it's, although there are now days in the year for all of, it seems like all almost all identities can celebrate in a day of their own, if you... Just know what the calendar is and when, you're, when your special days are coming up. Yeah, and I think um, I spoke about um, asexuality um, in the first series of this podcast. Right. And something that my guest said was that she felt that she'd spent most of her life with people trying to correct her. Um, so she knew that she kind of felt this way from a young age and that it was just a sense of like, well, you know, everyone else was saying, well, I'm interested in this. And she was saying, well, I'm not. Mm. And this, you know, she felt very sure of herself and very sure of her identity. And she said, you know, she luckily was very kind of accepting of it and felt accepted. But then at the same time, everyone kept kind of dismissing her and saying, you know, you're young, you know, you'll, you'll change. And that in itself was a difficult thing to balance because she was like, well, I don't, that's not how I'm feeling. So why are you mm. telling me that or why are you dismissing that? And I suspect that's very common. And, you know, some of the myths that we often hear, um, and, you know, this is one that 
I really kind of struggle with, but I hear a lot, is like the idea that kind of bisexuality sometimes is people just trying it out, inverted commas, mm-hmm. and actually that that's not a permanent um, identity or way of identifying oneself, whereas actually when you talk to people who are bisexual, they're like, no, this is how I feel. It's and a perfectly valid identity and orientation. Exactly, but it gets kind of invalidated a lot of the time. And it's probably the majority, it, is, it probably fits the majority, but it's also the one probably one of the hardest orientations to be when mm. when we started looking at LGBT mental health or LGB mental health um, some years back, we, bisexuals were included in lesbian and gay mental health, and it was um, the figures were around twenty percent were um, at times feeling suicidal in their lives. And that figure has remained the same for lesbians and gay men. But now we're doing, we're separating out the bisexuals and we're seeing that for bisexuals, the figure is double that. It's, it's around 40% of bisexuals have felt suicidal. Um, and we just, we just lumped them in and assumed, and it, in a sense, it inflated the figures. Um, and so bisexual, mental, bisexual people, particularly bisexual women, had poorer, are more likely to be depressed, uh, more likely to have problems with substance misuse. Uh, with, with anxiety, because it's really hard holding that space of be, of being both. You get you mm. get it in the neck from heterosexuals, and you get it in the neck from lesbians and gays who just accuse you of sitting on the fence and not being able to make up your mind, or or being unreliable or untrustworthy. All kinds of horrible myths that that attend to bisexuality. So no wonder it's a it's a tough one to to occupy. And therefore, people do choose. That people then feel like, well, it's really hard being by. I think I, I think I must just settle down and choose one, one orientation or one partner, and 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 then not often not very happy because there's a huge part of them being unfulfilled. Although not every desire has to be acted upon, it it can feel like I'm denying a part of myself in order to to be able to remain with this partner who wouldn't want me, you know, and our friends wouldn't be comfortable knowing that I'm then I'm actually bisexual because that might undermine the quality of our relationship. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a really, um, I'm really pleased that we talked about that because I think that the myths and the narratives around sexuality and, you know, gender and gender norms and gender stereotypes can be so challenging, but also influential in that mm. behaviour, conforming, feeling the need to fit in, to be a part of the group, as you were kind of saying earlier. Mm. Um, but it can go against kind of how we're truly feeling. And as you said, you know, one of the big consequences of that is the impact on mental health. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is a transitory stage for some people. I mean, I, when I first came out, I tried to tell myself, I, I'd only ever had sex with, with men in my teens, but I tried to tell myself that that was a phase that was going to pass. And it wasn't until I was at 21 when I actually thought this phase is going on a bit too far. It hasn't mm. passed. But I came out as bisexual, although I'd never had a relationship beyond a, a couple of months with a girl when I was, if, you know, when we were about 15. I'd never had a relationship with a girl, but I felt like that was easier to accept for my parents. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but you make, you know, I kind of made that assumption. And then, and then later realized that no, this isn't. This is just a lie. Claiming something that it's not true for me is a lie. Um, so I then just said, well, I'm I'm gay, and, and now I guess my identification has kind of moved on to being queer. 
Um, mm. it, it, because I think very often we might we might feel if we are one thing at one point in our lives and our identifications change. Sometimes our sexual desires change, uh, that sexuality can be really quite plastic um, and people assume that it's going to be fixed and fixed for life. And the, the, the evidence is from, from most of us, that is not the case. Given, given different circumstances and opportunities, we may well see a shift in our sexuality. That doesn't mean it can be treated and it can be cured and you can be forced out of it. There's, abs- there's plenty of evidence to say that isn't possible. But actually what we say we are today is what we know we are today, but we don't necessarily know what we're going to be in, in two years' time. Mm. I mean, as with anything in life, no? <laughs> well, I think it's hard, though, when you want some certainty and, and somebody wants to commit to a partner and you're about to get married, say, and, mm. and you feel like, well, I, I, I can commit to you now because I know in my heart I really feel it. But, but who knows? I mean, who knows mm. if, if, whether that is going to be a relationship for life either but people believe it is at the time and they make those commitments but but things change mm. and is that what we hear described as sexual fluidity mm-hmm. fluidity implies it's a lot more kind of flexible than it really is i think it's a little bit more viscous than fluid it's a bit like that castrol gtx advert with the oil flowing through uh, a, a scene it's it's just a bit thicker it's a bit slower in moving than something that's just a fluid like water and can move anywhere very quickly. Mm. But yeah, I think it's I think it is fluid. And I think it's it it's fluid for men as well as for women. And there's plenty of research that shows it's it's fluid for women. But subsequent research has shown that the men have that kind of flexibility too, if they if they step outside of the kind of toxic masculinity that's holding them mm. back from things. Mm. And I think um, you know, we well, I mean, as therapists, I think, hear a lot about men in a way feeling that there are more limitations to them, perhaps, mm. or there's more taboo around them exploring their sexuality with same-sex partners than perhaps there might be for women sometimes. Absolutely. And not just even their sexuality, just intimacy with another man. Being able to be to be affectionate, to be close to another man, um, to have a cuddle uh, in, in a non-sexualized way. It's everything's kind of has to be seen through a sexual lens. And I guess something I always also um, wanted to explore, because I think this is a question that seems to come up, is what about people who feel that what they're fantasising about or kind of exploring privately or on their own mm-hmm. doesn't match up to how they're expressing themselves um, publicly or in partnered situations? Because... Quite often I speak to people who are like, okay, well, my partner is a different sex, for example, but what I really like to watch on my own time is same-sex porn. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the big question, isn't sure. it? Like, what does that mean? What does that mean about me? You know, is that a problem? Um, and I guess that was something I kind of wanted us to unpick a bit because what we know is that, you know, one of the kind of earliest examples of, I suppose, the the spectrum um, being discussed is the Kinsey scale, the thing that we kind of all hear about mm. a lot, which was first published in 1948, but showed that people didn't kind of fit into these exclusively heterosexual or homosexual categories. Um, and it also accounted for kind of sexual behaviour, thoughts 
and feelings. Mm. And I guess that's the bit that I wanted to slightly unpick in this conversation because that that is what's going on for us. Sexuality isn't just what we do, but it's kind of how we feel and who we kind of consider ourselves to to be. There's a lot around identity in that. But we can express ourselves differently in those different ways, can't we? Absolutely. And I think our fantasy world, our, there's no there's no there's no sex police in our fantasy world. No <laughs> one can come along and prosecute you for your fantasies. And there are places where we can play and we can try things out and that can bring us a great deal of pleasure. Um, um, but they might also bring us some, some shame. I remember a quote by Esther Perel, um, who's beloved by, by all of us sex therapists, <laughs> I think, as a goddess yeah. of sex therapy, <laughs> who said um, regarding women's fantasies and around rape, we campaign in the daytime against the things that we're privately fantasizing about at night. In term, when she was discussing how common rape fantasies are amongst some for some women, but we don't always we don't always have the opportunity to act on some of these fantasies because they're sometimes they're so unrealistic. You know, you know, there's a there are fetishes. Um, melisophilia is a fantasy a fetish around bees, um, and there's one for ants as well. Or we might fantasize about sex with giants when we're really tiny or with sci-fi mm. creatures. And these are impossible things. But, and they're, you know, all fantasies are harmless and the fantasies are not going to lead us onto doing anything about it. We can just stay at the level of fantasy and enjoy the experience. It doesn't mean because we think about it and we get off to it, we have to go out and do it. And, mm. and very often, you know, people don't want to, to do the thing. They just enjoy the fantasy. Mm. So we can kind of explore it within the facets of our minds without it having to go any further. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that you picked gay, gay, um, same-sex porn there because gay porn is enjoyed by lesbians as much as it's enjoyed by, mm. by gay men and it's enjoyed by straight women as much as it's enjoyed by gay men. Um, yeah. it's, 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 it's like there's something about two, seeing two men having sex together that seems seems to be highly erotic for people of all sexualities. Mm. Um, and yet that it can be a bit of a, uh, a, a mind twist to, uh, to try to, to get one's head around that. But Jack Morin did, a, did some amazing work in writing The Erotic Mind. And that's really worth people checking out if they, if they want to know more about erotic fantasies. Um, and how and how they work for us. Mm. And I think that goes back to the kind of norms, narratives and assumptions, isn't it? That actually, like, the problem for people tends to be in the space between what they are doing and what they think they should be doing or what others would think about what they're doing, if that makes sense. I suppose if someone is questioning or in a space of feeling unsure or that they are open to kind of exploring their sexuality is, for example, um, like pornography or, you know, a good way of exploring that. Because I suppose, you know, and this question gets bounded around a lot, doesn't it? Is all pornography bad? And, you know, my answer is no, mm, because sure. what it also offers a lot of people who are in certain sexuality groups is a way of exploring it safely and on their own, but also a way of seeing that they're not alone in what they're experiencing. So in a funny way, it can offer that sense of community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that the internet has offered a lot of people of accessing in a, in a safer way. 
Absolutely. I think I think porn is bad when it's exploitative. Mm. But porn isn't bad in terms of it isn't an addiction. People can't become addicted to porn. And there's been some good neuroscience on this. Um, and so porn is, porn is often used as a way to shame people for either their normal um, sexual desires or for their what would be seen as abnormal sexual desires. Um, and if you can think about it, porn exists of it. So it's, you know, rule 40, is it 43, I think? Or 47, says if, if you can think about it, it exists. There's porn mm. of it. Um, and it's like, it is a good way of look, these kind of sexually explicit materials can be a really good way to try to see what turns you on and what excites you. Of course, what you see in a lot of porn isn't like real sex at all. Yeah. And so that can be tricky for people because they then think, oh, I couldn't find the fast forward button and I got a bit bored, so I lost my erection halfway through um, because the partner didn't have a fast forward button. It doesn't, there is it's in this constant stream of excitement. Um, and, and it might be unrealistic body types, but there's some really good quality ethical porn being made out there now for, for people of all genders that's very, you know, where people are being paid a fair rate. It's got, it shows people having fun. It shows the amazing intimate connection that human beings are having or can have when they're having sex. And it isn't all about um, disembodied uh, action, uh, penetrative mm. action, which I, for me, leaves me cold. I can't, I can't abide professionally produced mass porn. Um, but I think the amateur stuff or the ethical stuff really kind of plays to the vulnerability and the intimacy and the excitement of, of what an encounter can be like. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and that is hot, I think. And, and that's safe for people to watch. Um, and it's very COVID safe at the moment. <laughs> and I think the, the viewing figures have gone up hugely mm. for all of this for in this last year. Yeah, and I think it's exploration is, is a really interesting kind of like word when we're talking about this, isn't it? Because it's, it's also about finding what works for you. And, you know, so mm -hmm. often, you know, as therapists and we're talking to people about exploring their bodies and exploring the types of sex they like or the type of kind of touch they like or the type of sensuality they like, that it's also about working out what works for you. Yeah. And that's something I always kind of, I always find myself um, almost referring, using kind of food analogies when it comes to sex. It's a good um, metaphor, so, yes, yes. Mm, you know, we don't all like to go to the same restaurants. We don't all like the same cuisines. We don't all choose the same thing off the menu. We don't all like to go back to the same place. Mm -hmm. Like some of us like to mix it up. Some of us prefer to kind of go back to an old favourite. It's that sense of why are we so accepting of the variability in every other aspect of our life apart from here? That's absolutely right. I completely support that. And I think the food analogy works really well because sometimes you just want a snack. <laughs> And it's not very sustaining, but you just want a cookie. Yeah. And other times you want a full banquet um, or, or a smorgasbord. And you really want to put your boat out and enjoy the, a really long experience. Mm. Um, and, and so I think as an analogy, it works really, really mm. well. And I just think it's, you know, it's a demonstration of we, we have these ideas of sex and sexuality and sex lives as constant and fixed. Uh -huh. And, and then everyone's not... doing it all the time and it's always yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, how untrue that is. Oh. Um, but how this idea of it's... And I can't work out, you know, I've never really understood, like, if I know what the answer to the question is, why do we all think like that? Is it because of just a lack of 
movement in terms of kind of education and conversation? Is it the kind of fact that it's for so long all been behind closed doors? Is it the lack of visibility? You know, I don't, is it just the way that we imagine sex mm. because we aren't able to verify by che- by checking or by um, finding out kind of what other people are up to in a um, in a kind of curious way. And I suppose, you know, we're at this in- interesting intersection between his- history and now the internet obviously being the kind of hand grenade in the middle of that. Mm. What are these really damaging assumptions about sex and sexuality? And that for me is one of them across the board, irrespective of gender, sexuality, identity, is that it always has to be the same or if we find ourselves where we are and something mm. changes, then yeah. there must be something yeah. wrong with us. I think... Um... I, I was well. I was listening to a podcast between uh, Cindy Darnell and Doug Braun Harvey. The, oh yeah, the other two of the greats. Two of the greats. I, I love. <laughs> yeah. I, I love them both very dearly. And um, Doug was talking about sex, sexual health being a balance between safety and pleasure. And I think mm. that's a really. It, it's a. It's a great podcast for people to go and check out. Um, the erotic on the erotic philosopher. That's but, a great podcast. But. Um, Sex, sex is, is, is around balancing danger and, and pleasure. And we often focus on the danger of it um, and not on the pleasure. And I think it's about trying to help people move towards the pleasure to ensure that their sex is consensual, that it's honest, that they respect the person that they're having sex with, that people know what this is about, whether it's a one-night stand or a quickie or whether it's something that's, that's, you know, a long-term meaningful relationship. Um, whether it's an affair on the side that you're not talking about, you need to be honest and you need to respect partners. And these kind of sexual health principles, I think, need, you know, guide, can, can guide us towards having a really great sex life without guilt and shame. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think that breaking away from guilt and shame, as we describe them, like socially regulating Mm -hmm. feelings is so important. And I suppose a huge part of that is acceptance. And I guess perhaps making society and culture um, more widely accepting can kind of help us all on an individual level kind of accept ourselves more. Dominic, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with me today. I know you are incredibly, incredibly busy. And just really for me, it's a huge thank you to you for being such an enormous change maker in the sexual and gender diversity space. I recommend to Pink Therapy as an organisation all the time, will continue to, and really recommend that anyone who wants to know more about this topic or is looking for a therapist who is experienced in working with sexual and gender diversities, Pink Therapy is absolutely 100% the place to go. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.